0: Today I want to talk about fintech and I'm lucky enough to have as my guest Ron Khalifa and you can tell that we're talking about business and fintech because I'm wearing a jacket and Ron is wearing a tie because this podcast has also moved to video as well. You can actually watch it on YouTube and the like as well as listening to it while you go on your five o'clock in the morning jog before you get down to your endless day of Zoom calls. Now, the reason I've asked Ron Khalifa onto my podcast is not only is he a fantastically successful fintech entrepreneur, but perhaps for related reasons, he was asked by the finance minister in the UK, our Chancellor, the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak, to do a deep dive into the UK fintech scene and have a look at what we could do to make sure it remains or becomes even more successful. Ron helped build a very successful fintech company, Worldpay, which is spun out of RBS, he's now on the Council of the Bank of England, on the Council of Imperial College, a world-class university, a non-exec director of Transport for London, chairman of FutureLearn, but for the purposes of this podcast, he is Ron Khalifa of the Khalifa Review into FinTech. Welcome, Ron. Thank you for such a warm welcome, and I'm rather sad that I'm wearing a tie
1: but um, (laughs) I think it's an honor for this group. Thank you. You look
0: very good. I'm delighted to have you here. I thought I'd just start actually, I don't normally start with asking people to kind of review their career, but tell us a bit about WorldPay because it was an early FinTech and a big, big success. Tell us about how you went about building that. Yeah, um,
1: so WorldPay is a payments provider um, I first touched it in 2002 when it was um, very small business. Um, it had been started by an entrepreneur who moved on and I went in to become chief executive. It was, uh, at the time, probably 75 people, £7 million loss-making business, and its objective was to accept card payments. So customers of Willpay were merchants or retailers, uh, typically online, And if you can think about it, 2002 was rather early in the online journey in terms of uh, e-commerce. But the reality was that we built the business. It grew rapidly. It was part of a bank. It was part of NatWest. Then it became part of RBS, Royal Bank of Scotland. RBS had a series of challenges that many will know globally um, in 2008, 2009, which was about the time when I needed some capital to invest further in the business. And it was at that time that we invested um, that two private equity guys uh, came and invested in the business. They paid about £2 billion for a business that had grown relatively quickly, had about a 40% market share of the UK high street. So one out of every two payments was being processed through WorldPay. And they bought the business for £2 billion. They invested heavily, supported us magnificently, um, invested a further £1.5 billion. And about five years later in 2015, it was listed here in London uh, on the stock exchange. It was in many ways the sort of poster child, if you want to call it that, for fintech. It was the largest listing of that period. And it listed for about six billion pounds. They got a good return on their money, but they'd invested really well. We had built everything from scratch. You know, although there were something in the region of three, four thousand people, every aspect of the business was treated as a startup. Policies had to change because it was policies previously set for a bank, and then uh, technology had to change. People had to change as well. Um, so I used to describe it as the largest startup in history in terms of with you know three four thousand people. But the reality was that it was a great success story. And then from there, about eighteen months later, a U.S. entity called Vantiv came in, took an interest in it, and they bought it. And then it became part of the Vantiv group. Then the combined business, Vantiv and Wellpay, got sold on again to another business called FIS about another 18 months later so consolidation i think has played a significant part in payments as we as we all know and i think that continue that will continue in terms of you know where where that sector and other sectors are going to be because i think the thing that make makes that work scale is a driver for success and scale basically is about being number 1 or number 2 in your markets The second aspect of it is where are you going to get customers from? And that's a really important ingredient for success, as is
0: technology. So great business, very proud of it. And um, it's continued to do well. So I'm really glad I asked the question, actually, because within that narrative and that story that you told me, there's a whole lot of policy stuff to unpack in terms of scale. I was thinking about WorldPay as an early version of Stripe and its six billion valuation, while impressive, doesn't compare to the kind of valuations that a company like Stripe now uh, commands. In fact, while, while you were building WorldPay, I, I was a minister of technology who met the Collinson brothers when they were about 12. <laughs> I wish I'd resigned on the spot and asked for a job. Uh, and also the fact that you listed in London is also another factor which we might return to because there's a related review which complements review you've done on listing in London. But Let's get into your review because clearly your experience at WorldPay will have influenced how you've approached the topic. You talked about scale and consolidation. An investment, but let's start with setting the scene. That you found you've you worked for a year on this review. You said it's the hardest year of your life. And considering you built a multi-billion-pound company, that's saying something. You've consulted with hundreds of people. Tell us about the UK fintech scene.
1: Yeah, that's, um, it has been a, it has been a tremendously difficult thing to do um, because I'm used to running businesses as opposed to writing reports. But it's, I think it's an important report because it basically sets the scene and it sets a strategy for a sector where in the UK, we have a significant market share. It's a sector globally which is growing. It's growing from about £110 billion today to about £380 billion over the next 10 years, threefold growth And it's, our position in the UK, as I said, is um, strong, solid 10% market share. And I think that strength is underpinned by several fundamental factors. The first one is that capital is very strong, investment is very strong into the UK fintech scene. It stood last year at $4.1 billion, which was um, significantly more than our European counterparts combined, the next four European countries combined. So Germany was at 1.4, Sweden was at 1.3, UK was at 4.1. Another fundamental um, aspect of the UK is, in terms of fintech, is that the capability is very, very powerful. We've got a strong heritage in financial services and a growing capability in terms of technology talent. Thirdly, I think we've set the benchmark for policy-led innovation across the UK. Key initiatives such as the FCA Regulatory Sandbox, Open Banking, you know these have been pioneering things that have been launched and led from the UK. It's interesting, when you actually look at uh, the sandboxes, which are now replicated around the world, the UK launched the first one in 2017, and now there are over 50 around the world. Additionally, you know, if you think about the activities, the UK has a very digitally active set of people. Its citizens are digitally active. Something in the region of 71% of the UK's population are digitally active adults, which compares broadly to about 46% in the States. And we're all using these services without thinking about them. It might be transferring money around the world, it might be SME lending, whatever it is. But also I think COVID has been a tremendous accelerator of digital activity over the last 12 months, as as we all know, not just in terms of Zoom calls or podcasts or whatever we're doing now, or online banking, but in the very, very first month of lockdown last year in March, April, there was something like 6 million people, 12% of the adult population, downloaded a banking app for the very first time in their kind of history, in their career, in their life. And what that tells me, I think, is that there's a behavioural change that we've seen, which actually implies that this is the way the world is going to work. So this is an activity which is not a niche thing. This is a significant activity for the UK, but also for the world. And importantly, I think it's here to stay.
0: You've talked about us having a 10% market share and also the pioneering kind of regulatory work that's been done in the UK, the sandbox, just to remind people, being the opportunity for startups to effectively work with the regulator as they develop their product rather than create the product and then run into a regulatory brick wall when they try and launch it. Given that we're pioneers and we have 10% of market share, why can't we just rest on our laurels? What are the threats to the success of UK FinTech? I think it's probably worth defining
1: what fintech is because it's one of these buzzwords that sort of thrown around. And fintech is basically as close to the broader tech sector as it is to the financial services sector. And uh, the way I think about it is that we in the UK can combine all three fintech, technology and financial services to develop a platform that few competitors can match globally. So fintech is about using financial services and technology. Many companies I've spoken to actually think of themselves as a technology company as opposed to a financial services company. But it might be to do a range of things up and down the value chain. It might be on SME financing. It might be on salary advance schemes. It might be on credit scoring. It might be on digital banking for the unbanked. There's a slew of opportunities that this sector is played to. But the threats really are... I don't think anyone should rest on their laurels. And it's very interesting as I've gone around talking to different geographies, different markets around the world. I asked the same question in terms of what is it you're doing in terms of FinTech? What's What's the goal? What are you driving to? And, you know, whether it's Australia who have a very focused goal for Australia to be a leading digital economy by 2030, or whether it's Singapore who have a goal of being the international hub and regional leader in FinTech innovation. Or whether it's France, where Macron basically wants to increase the profile of tech entrepreneurs. And um, the task for us is to ensure that we stay in the lead. And staying the lead isn't just there to sort of, frankly, you know, pacify the UK, but it actually is about setting standards for a sector, a, an economy, let me call it that, that is growing and is going to play a significant role in the future financial services. For most economies globally. So I think it's vital that we play a part in making sure that we are seen as not just thought leaders, but action leaders as well in terms of shaping the future.
0: And you mentioned, I mean, I think you mentioned Brexit in the report as well, word that no one really (laughs) wants to mention anymore. Is that an opportunity for you? You I mean, I I take your point that you made earlier, and, and I hope to bring this out in the podcast, that actually a lot of what you recommend in the report applies to the whole tech sector. And if the government can use your report, not just to bring board into renewed support for fintech, but a renewed across the board tech policy, in the way it did in the early part of the last decade, then there are massive opportunities. And in theory, Brexit is one of them, at least if you're a person who believes in Brexit, you would say now is the opportunity for Britain to forward its own way in this area. What's your dispassionate view of of the threats and opportunities from Brexit?
1: So so I think Brexit has both sides of the coin. It is a threat as well as an opportunity. It's a threat in one way because it has created some regulatory uncertainty in specific areas which are relevant to fintech. One example, firms now from the 1st of January have got to navigate the immigration system for EU talent for the first time whilst rival jurisdictions are rolling out aggressive attempts to lure talent. So one of the recommendations in the report is to create a new visa stream to enhance access to international talent for scale-ups. In other words, a company that's growing rapidly, that's already established, and is bringing, uh, wants to bring people in. And that's been the kind of legacy for many successful businesses here in the UK. It should be allowed to do that without going through some barriers at the moment There are some significant barriers, including cost. It's about £10,000 to bring an individual in. Time is is the main one, approximately eight weeks. That's something that I think is going to get streamlined. And and I was thrilled at the fact that the government in the UK, through the Chancellor, talked about that the day after the report was uh, released and applauded it as too, too strong a statement, but certainly welcomed it and thought it was an appropriate thing to do for the sector. Because we've got to make sure that we can continue to grow the sector through things. So I think that would be a threat. The opportunity is that we're now in a very positive position because we we can do things which are unencumbered by some of the challenges that we've had in the past. So we're not dependent on, many of the recommendations are not dependent on regulatory alignment or equivalence with the EU. It actually allows us to pursue policies on things like data or digital ID or central bank uh, digital currency. Unencumbered. And that gives us the license to operate, again, for a sector that I think is going to grow. And we've got to be part of that.
0: So you mentioned digital ID in passing. Let's focus a bit on that. At the heart of successful fintech services, and perhaps this is more appropriate to fintech than tech as a whole, lies digital ID. If if, if you're ever going to need an online secure identity, it's to use government services where you're taking a risk, paying your taxes, applying for a passport or where you're using your bank, where effectively you're putting your money at risk. So digital ID sits at the heart of this. Tell me a bit about what your thoughts are on how we can push forward on digital ID, where I think the UK has, to a certain extent, slipped behind other countries. Yeah, I
1: think we have slipped
0: a bit, but I don't think it's it's slippable
1: enough that we can't do anything about it. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we've got a, a set of principles which um, I've put into the report, basically that we've got to establish and create a successful um, digital ID verification infrastructure. Let me call it that. So things like a corporate ID, as well as ID for individuals, should be within the scope of a trust framework. Mm. A corporate digital ID, for example, can um, can help accurately manage, verify companies applying under, let's call it the COVID business loan schemes, for example. The solution should be digital-based, and I think it's important rather than some digital workaround that basically means that there's a ton of paper in the background, which is one of the, the failings that we could fall into. We should make sure that the infrastructure is based on a, a set of attributes, so it's attributes-based. Uh, in other words, technology to allow only for specific and relevant attributes, age perhaps, to be checked without the whole attribute itself moving around on the system. So that's another uh, thought process. And I don't think there's a need for a centralized pool of data, a distributed or a federated model means that data doesn't have to be confined into one place, giving concerns that may be around, particularly for consumers. So I think that's the way I've thought about it. But it's going to happen. And, you know, the question in my mind around whether it's digital ID or some of the things around data, for example, is why are we not the ones setting the standard, setting the protocols to ensure that we can set the trust framework? for the globe. And I think that's the way we should be thinking about these opportunities. And it's not to say that others can't do it, of course they can do it, but it comes back to my earlier point. We have built over three or 400 years, a level of trust in financial services. These aspects can be replayed for the new economy that is around the corner. And that's where the opportunity lies for us.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I think it feels like we're at an inflection point with digital ID. I mean, the government has put out its trust framework for consultation. But at the same time, it does feel there's still this kind of lack of urgency and indeed lack of ambition. Those are my words. I wouldn't expect you to comment, Ron. You're still having to work with the government in terms of implementing your report. But one of the things you talk about in your report, it sounds incredibly dull, but it's very important, the Digital Economy Task Force. And what I mean by that is it it goes to this thing that I'm sort of mildly obsessed by, which is Whitehall, British word for government effectively, our equivalent of Capitol Hill, if you like. Whitehall works in silos and the point about your digital economy task force is to make the point that in terms of the things you want to see in terms of your fintech review and indeed for tech in general is everyone has skin in the game somebody has to coordinate this somebody has to give this a bit of energy is that fair yeah i think
1: i think it's fair Um, that that part's fair the other part isn't fair which is that (laughs) i actually think that the um i do think that the government is and i say this because i'm starting to see it firsthand if i think about some departments within government DCMS is at the heart of many of the things we're talking about in terms of digitization of the UK economy. Um, the Secretary of State there is very focused on ensuring that we drive activity forward. These are complex issues to solve, as you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a, there's a whole bunch of, not just a political landscape, but also a technological one and also one of collaboration. So there's a, there's a fine line to drive to ensure that consumers feel protected through data, for example, but also we can move forward. But to your point on digital task force, digital economic task force, I think there's some very, very, very able and well-intentioned people who are thinking about fintech across government. But it is lacking coordination, and that it does mean that there's fragmentation, particularly on key fintech areas. Take open finance. Open finance sits across the regulator, the FCA. It sits across a department called Bayes and it sits across Treasury and to an extent, the CMA. So we've got to start to find ways to bring some of these things together. And that doesn't mean that we set up a new depart- new minister or a new department. It just means about coordination so that people are clear as to how to manage this. I've spent a lot of time talking to founders and investors as we've gone through this report, and they find it challenging, frustrating, whatever words you want, to go and talk to 20 different people about different aspects of things that they want to get they can't get a joined up answer and it's that joined up answer that we need to get to because these are as i said earlier these are about the economies and the businesses of the future it's going to have to get done in one form or other and i suspect government wants to do it it's a question of how does it organize itself to do it
0: so another suggestion in your report is is effectively a fund for fintech and the government's dipped its toe in the water motivated by COVID in a startup fund where it's co-invested with venture capital. But your idea is a slightly different one. And it's to address a sort of gap in scale up. And to a certain extent, that's where I want to echo, again, this is a, a partly an obsession of mine as well, my slightly glib comment about world pay versus strike. You know, we've got the Swedish company Klarna, a friend of ours, Uh, I interviewed their head of US strategy for this podcast going gangbusters. You've got Stripe at a $95 billion valuation founded by two Irish brothers who moved from Dublin to San Francisco. We can't seem to create companies of this scale in Europe stroke, even though Klarna is obviously a Swedish company. And we have this scale up gap. And you think a sort of government fund can help start to fill that gap. What causes the scale up gap and what is the best way to solve it? So, I think the challenge that exists,
1: and I think it's pretty well recognized that the UK doesn't have a challenge in terms of startups. Yeah, exactly. It tends to be a problem in businesses that are scaling up. So, we get lots of businesses who have got fantastic innovative ideas um, who want to get things moving. It's the growth capital funding gap in the UK that I'm trying to address. It's actually across Europe, but it's particularly so here in the UK. It was actually identified as part of the British Patient Capital Review some work done, you know, some time back. And as a consequence, the British Patient Capital Review was set up and work was done to fund venture firms to fill that gap. Now, that was a good initiative using government money. But what I've been trying to think about is how do we get private money so the government isn't being asked for anything else to come and help fill that gap? Government's got enough on its place at the moment in terms of things that it needs to solve for. So my thinking is to take the lessons from the creation of what's called the Business Growth Fund which was set up some 10 years ago at a time of a very different crisis, but to take those lessons and figure out with industry how to stand up a growth fund for this sector, which has industry participants as shareholders, so it's insurers and pension funds primarily, but the government helping in two ways: one is to create some convening power and to open the door, and secondly to insert some influence to make this happen by looking at. Regulatory obstacles that prevent today our domestic insurers and pension funds from investing in growth companies. There are a number of obstacles that are already being looked at, but that's essentially at the heart of it. It's, it's re- really interesting when you—I've suggested we put in, or we find a way to create a one billion pound growth fund. There's a two billion gap. I've tried to be realistic and say let's do this for one billion. Today in the UK there are there's 66 trillion in terms of how much is actually locked in, six trillion, sorry, that's locked in um, uh, pension funds alone. When you actually start to think about that, diverting an element of that into this would pay dividends. And it would just fuel the opportunity to start creating some businesses around the place. So that's, that's the scaling up task that we've got to get to.
0: The six trillion figure is amazing. And it is, uh, you just do think that is a sleeping giant of capital that could be being much more effectively deployed. Do you think, though, that the kind of pension trustees, if we gave them this power, as it were, would they actually use it? Because I suspect they're all extremely conservative.
1: They are conservative, but I think think they're also, from the conversations that I've had across the sectors, there is interest in this. And I think people recognise that something has to be done because a small proportion of that £6 could be diverted to yeah. high-growth technology opportunities, like, like us, like FinTech. Um, and there's already some work going on in terms of productive finance, which is another body that's been set up in the UK to try and think about how do you provide some oxygen into these opportunities. So that's the task, I think, and, and the opportunity. But I think that the door is certainly more open than it was in the past.
0: Yeah, I mean, you've got in our Chancellor Finance Minister, Rishi Siddak, somebody who's you know a former banker as well, You do feel that if at any point we can get to something like the other side of COVID, that there might be a real drive to um, put this through, including, for example, you yourself talking in your report about a better environment for listing in the UK. And Jonathan Hill, former European commissioner, has also produced a report alongside yours. Is that going to be important, changing the listing rules and making London potentially a home for SPACs? allowing founders to maintain control once they've listed in London? I think the answer, the simple answer is yes. So there were three
1: recommendations as it related to listings. One was to reduce the free float requirements on the segment from 25% to 10% or for a limited time after an IPO. Um, there was also something about dual class as well as scaling capital. I, I tend to think about things through an evidence-based activity. In other words, what's the data say and what does the data prove? So the data tells me that over the last five years, there have been 3,700 or something like that listings across the world's major exchanges. Of those, 37% has been in the States. In the UK, it's been under 5%. Now, you know, you have to ask yourself the question, why does that happen? It happens because of the capital challenges that we just talked about, that there's a sort of a, a lack of scaling capital. But it also happens because the rules don't make it easy in comparison to other markets. So we've got to to handle this through multiple lenses and try and get to a place which says, OK, this makes sense to do. Because when a company comes to market and is backed by venture capitalists or founders themselves, putting a high free float requirement on that company forces the sale of shares, which may not be in the interest of either the founders or the existing backers. So if liquidity is met and can be met through a lower free flow requirement, we're not disadvantaging anybody, we're just attracting high quality entrepreneurs and VCs to list in the UK rather than elsewhere. The second one is about share classes. We've got, a, in my words, a gold-plated, slightly pristine standard for the market here in the UK where there's only one share class allowed, ordinary shares. Dual class structures involve two different shares, or classes of shares with differential voting rights. And the objective is to allow founders and other pre-IPO holders to maintain voting rights and control the publicly listed company by holding shares which have enhanced voting rights versus those that might be held by URI's public shareholders. It's just not possible to do in London, whereas they're available on almost every other major exchange around the world. So we're risking and, and missing out on having these companies listed in London. That's not the only reason, but these are small contributors
0: it feels like sort of terrible oversight. Does London still have this um, system because they think it's, as you said, to a certain extent, the gold standard, or have they just forgotten to make the change? You know,
1: look, it's been talked about for years. Yeah. What I was trying to do was to shine a light on it and say that this is, this is something that we've got to create and to make sure that it's particularly attractive, particularly for rapidly growing companies, especially in the technology sector, because that's, that's as I said, you know, that's where growth is coming from. And founders typically want to keep voting control following an OPO, And the main argument is that, you know, founders can stay focused on the company's long-term strategy, growth and performance. That's the kind of importance of this, I think, going forward.
0: One sort of final thing that's emerged from your report is that sort of two ends of the spectrum. One is the regional point, which I think is a very important point about tech policy, which is that the great thing about the fintech sector and indeed the tech sector as a whole is that it plays a part in what we in the UK call the levelling up agenda, you know, Cities outside London can host and grow technology clusters. And often it's a sensible and wise decision to base yourself outside of London because you can get hold of talent that you can not have to pay London salaries for because their cost of living is so much lower. So there's the regional option of going to FinTech in Manchester, but there's also the global option, which is your call in your report for the department, our Department of International Trade to see FinTech as a key sector that they promote around the world. So let's go both regional and global in terms of your view on the impact of fintech investment. So um, I've
1: recommended that um, we, we did the analysis and there were 20 plus different geographic clusters within the UK that had some really exciting companies that were operating. We narrowed that down to 10 to say, let's focus on the largest opportunity of the 10. And, and those 10 typically are employing more people an average of 25% more than comparable businesses outside of those clusters. They're also paying more with an average of 11% higher salaries. So the Leeds-Manchester Corridor is a great example of that and is home to about 13% of high-growth fintechs, as is Scotland, et cetera. So I think this is really important because, as you say, levelling up is, a, is an expression that is talked about avidly within the UK. And it's an expression which is basically saying fintech in, in my case, in terms of what I'm talking about here, is not just about London. It's about growth. it's about jobs, it's about connectivity, it's about innovation that's happening throughout the UK. So let's give those uh, regions an opportunity to make sure that they've got the, and again, I use the word oxygen, to help them grow, help them connect, become much more coordinated. We think of them as centers of excellence going forward. And that's the way that I've I've thought about this particular side of things. On the international dimension, Absolutely. You know, we've got so much to be proud of. And when the Department of International Trade goes on trade missions, you know, why isn't fintech being talked about very, very uh, loud and clearly? So we've talked about creating an international plan of action and ensuring that there is a mechanism that allows founders to participate so that their world and their distribution model isn't constrained to the corridors of the U.K., but it's actually on a global stage. So that's what we've been trying to work through. And I think, uh, again, it's, you know, it's been working well, and I think um, it's been well-received from government who want to find ways to create this these corridors, increasing number, uh, going forward.
0: So you've slogged your guts out for a year writing this report. You've met, You've worked with hundreds of people. You've probably met or talked to several hundred, if not thousands of people. Was there any company you came across where you thought, I wish I hadn't thought of that idea. (laughs) You know, it's a bit like giving advice on shares; they can go up as well as down.
1: Um, So um, there there are just so many. I mean, I don't think it's one or two. There are, you know, up and down the country, there are examples of um, solutions that are just thriving. You know, there's a there's a great company I know called Salary Finance, which helps consumers get short-term payments prior to payday thereby preventing going to payday lenders, as an example. Credit QDOS is another one that looks at credit scores. It's a credit reference agency, which helps lenders make better and faster credit solutions. You know, digital banking for the unbanked. I mean, the list goes on. There's a company called Pocket, which it gives a pocket account, no matter what your credit score is. And it's a prepaid debit card, which has been used by people needing an account for their benefits payment. So it depends on the sectors you're talking about. But the, the fundamental message is we have a very, very, very positive set of businesses that are operating in the UK. They have got tremendous um, scale opportunities to create more growth, more jobs, and more investment as a consequence of that. And and I think that the, the picture for fintech is exceptionally rosy. I would love to get to a situation where we no longer talk about fintech, but we talk about financial services. Because at the end of the day, When that happens, then you start to thinking about it no longer as something that is happening and growing, but it's part and parcel of everyday life.
0: I think what you said earlier about, uh, I mean, I work with salary finance, funny enough, I've often thought the missed opportunity from a politician's point of view, in terms of talking about this sector, is to say how much money the average consumer can potentially save, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Uh, you know, if you switch your mortgage every two years, if you have a loan that you pay back through your salary if you pay off your credit card every month and so on. And there are kind of two aspects to this. One is you know, wait for the budget every year to see if income tax is going to be cut. You could virtually cut people's income tax if they kind of followed a 10-point plan in terms of using some of these incredible services rather than being stuck with the old guard. And there is what you refer to as the unbanked. And again, it's it's the poor people on low incomes who suffer the most because if they're not paying things by direct debit and so on and so forth, they end up paying far more money. So you could do a lot more for the average citizen as a politician by simply making sure they're using the right private sector services than um, lowering their income tax.
1: There's a huge opportunity, and I think, you know, I'll let the politicians work out the best way to do that. But the reality (laughs) is that from a commercial and business point of view, this, this is a sector that's growing. This is a sector that's employing potentially over a million people because financial services and fintech are merging. And I think it really is a question of how do these businesses collaborate with the larger incumbents to make sure that they are providing solutions which are for the benefit of citizens, small businesses, consumers. That's where I think fintech will play a growing lead.
0: Ron, thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure to see you again. I think the reports landed really well, but as with all great reports, it's only the end of the beginning rather than the beginning of the end. Are you going to go for a quiet life or are you going to bang the drum for your report for the next year? You know, it's a little bit like Christmas. What you tend to do is you
1: write a letter to Santa, you produce a report, it goes, it goes into the Santa. Santa, in this case, is the chanter of the exchequer. Then you wait for Christmas Day to see what presidents show up on Christmas Day. So he and his team and the economic secretary are thinking about this very clearly, I know, they're talking about it. And let's see what the recommendations come uh, and how they how they embrace it. And then we'll decide what needs to be done on the back of that. I'm certainly like a politician now. aren't I? No, saying.
0: not at all, actually. I thought that was a very good answer. <laughs> okay. Brilliant, Ron. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Lovely to see you all. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of The Vasey View, a production of Kindred Media.